Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. This week witnessed large demonstrations across the Kurdistan region of Iraq. In addition, we have also seen hundreds of migrants, mostly from Kurdistan, return to Erbil after their unsuccessful attempts to enter Europe and claim asylum. These two issues paint a clear picture that all is not well with our sisters and brothers in Kurdistan. To better understand the situation, I am joined today by Mira Jasim Bakr. Mira is originally from the ethnically disputed city of Kirkuk and is a non-resident fellow at the German Konrad Adenauer Foundation. Mira has published papers on various topics concerning the Kurdistan region, as well as his hometown of Kirkuk. His two recent publications were on the federal elections in Kirkuk and the Kurdish parties in the same elections. Currently, he is conducting research on the root causes of the Iraqi Kurdish immigration to Europe. He is a resident of Kurdistan. Welcome, Mira. Thank you so much, Hassan, for having me. Iraqi Kurdistan has been in the news for two major reasons. The migrants at the Belarusian border and the protests in Suleimania, which have spread to other cities like Erbil, Kalar, Rania, and Halabcha. Would you agree that these are symptoms of the same thing? Yes, uh, I would agree with that sentence. You know, the thousands of Kurds that are stuck at the Belarusian and Polish border, I would say they are just a drop of the of the pop of the population here. Um, people, students who are demonstrating now, are are sharing the same grievances or having the same reasons that the Kurdish immigrants have uh, at, the, at the border. Makes sense. And I would like to talk about the protests for a moment. What exactly were the university students protesting for? Are they seeking reform or outright revolution? This was a question often missed in the discussion on Tishreen in 2019, if you recall. Well, uh Personally, I don't think the uh, university students are only uh, protesting for a monthly stipend of $50, you know. I mean, if we just take a look um, at what, you know, supposedly are, you know, protesting for, a $50 uh, monthly stipend is, um, is, 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 you know, too little. And it automatically explains the dire economic or financial situation that the people here in the Kurdistan region are going through. Uh, I think, uh, and as we have seen, I think students are, or maybe they are unconscious that they are also um, demonstrating the whole system. Uh, I mean, for instance, um, if you take a look at the different uh, slogans, uh, or the khitab, or the narrative of the whole demonstrations. You know, many of them, they say, and end to, to the families. They refer to the two ruling families here in, in the Kurdistan region, the Talibanis and Barzanis. Um, uh, well, uh, we saw that uh, uh, also uh, other people, not students, uh, were joining the protesters. Uh, so I, I personally 
believe that uh, it is uh, accumulated grievances that the students uh, have and uh, and the monthly stipend that they have been deprived of since um, early 2014 is what kind of sparked the, the demonstrations. But they, they definitely uh, are not only demonstrating for, for a monthly stipend. They are fighting for freedom of speech. They are fighting for social justice. They are fighting for uh, better education and political participation. And what's uh, to me is interesting is that just like the rest of Iraq, majority of the demonstrators that we see in the Kurdistan region is, 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 uh, is the young people. So these young people uh, are, you know, as we say, they have nothing to lose. Uh, and these, these new generation of Iraq, including the Kurdistan region, uh, they have not experienced the atrocities or the ruling of the former regime. So um, they want a, a good life. They want good services. They want jobs. You cannot always, especially in the Kurdistan region, sell them the fact that there is security stability. Okay, there is security stability and these uh, new generation, these young people did not experience war. Uh, but of course, that's not enough for them. They want, um, they want jobs, they want uh, social justice, and they, were, they want uh, service provision, and they also want a good education system. What's interesting, uh, Mira, is uh, you brought up the uh, the demonstrators uh, in the other Iraqi provinces. Um, as someone who followed the Tishreen protests of 2019 quite closely, it's extremely worrying to see the same tactics being used in Suleimania that were used in Baghdad, Nasriya, and Najaf, including the military-grade smoke grenades. Former Prime Minister Adil Abdel Mahdi and his cabinet resigned after such violent tactics were used after pressure from the religious establishment in Najaf. In the absence of a similar institution in Iraqi Kurdistan, who would be able to put the same pressure on the Kurdistan regional government? You know, Hassan, uh, see, um, the like a young a protester, be an ordinary citizen or just a student from Zaho to Kifri or Kalar from, or to Basra, to Baghdad. These young generation, they have nothing to lose. And they have, especially in the Kurdistan region, they have seen uh, civic movements uh, really trying to bring about political and economic change. And um, they haven't seen results, real results through, you know, civic means. Uh, I mean, for instance, in 2009, when the uh, change movement, Goran movement was established, uh, it was a big, big hope for people to bring about political uh, and economic change. And now they saw that, for instance, this movement came in second electorally in, uh, in 2013, but because of the because of the system that the two ruling parties here have established, this uh, this party could not stand and could not carry out structural reform. So my understanding is that they they they, they no longer believe that uh, through the uh, parliament or through civic means they can they can bring about change or they can put pressure on on the on the ruling parties. And uh, I mean, well, we have to. Um, we have to understand the different dynamics uh, in, in central and southern provinces compared to the 
to the northern Kurdistan region. Here we have two ruling parties and uh, it is uh, it is impossible to separate the parties from from the government. I mean, especially when it comes to security institutions, the whole Kurdistan region security apparatus is just a two-party apparatus, like from police to Peshmerga to intelligence to counterterrorism forces. Like, for instance, these, I mean, the, the security forces that are now cracking down on demonstrators in Sleimania are not the security forces of the KDP, but but uh, those of, of, of the PUK. Uh, and the, the, the people uh, tried to put pressure on, on, on the Kurdistan region through uh, through through the change movement, through the Goran movement, but it also failed. Uh, so frankly, I don't see uh, I I don't see that the people here have any strong civic tool uh, to put pressure on the on the KRG. Uh, and of course, by no means uh, it is it is it is it is possible uh, to put pressure on the government to resign. Mira, it's interesting you you bring up the um, security institutions um, because we've seen protests in the past in Kurdistan and they tend to always be met with very heavy-handed tactics deployed by the security forces. I'd like to know why have international organizations and the international community been silent about these abuses? And do you think that the silence has been broken with these protests well uh frankly this is also one of my uh one of my questions when i have met with you know some some diplomats from um uh, the kris international uh, you know allies I've, I've told them okay uh, you're you're providing the government and the government uh, is the puk and kdp with military supports and these includes for instance hundreds of humvees um, and, and, and these Humvees are deployed to the streets against, you know, against civilians, against, uh, demonstrators. So why, why these military support is not conditional? Well, I mean, if, if I just give you a very, very, very frank answer, um, I mean, my answer is that because the, the entire security institutions of the two ruling parties are not involved in a proxy war, or in other words, they are not posing threats to the international, you know, actors here, to diplomats. That's why, uh, in a sense, I see there is a, you know, they are silent. Because in the rest of Iraq, Humvees, other, you know, weapons, they end up in the in the hands of the militias. And the fact that uh, international actors are very concerned about it is because, uh, they can be used against them, but here it's not against it's not used against them, but against the people, and they 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 choose to be silent. Uh, and so far, uh, I mean, I've I've, I've published uh, uh, an extensive paper on on these security forces. So see, the international community since two thousand fourteen, with the emergence of ISIS, have been training, funding, and uh, uh, and arming uh, the the KRI uh, security forces. You know, primarily the Peshmerga forces, and they are trying to carry out security sector reform. Uh, you know, exclusively focused on the on the Peshmerga forces, and and this should be very clear: the the Peshmerga forces, uh, you know. 
they are not involved or they are not deployed to crack down on demonstrators. It is the other security forces of the uh, of the parties, which is uh, which is the internal security forces. It is the police. It is the Asaish. Sometimes it is the counterterrorism forces uh, that they, you know, uh, that they crack down on, on demonstrators. Um, I mean, um, it is also my question why they are not saying anything about these abuses. I mean, so far, we haven't even seen any statement uh, from the from the diplomats here in, in the KRI. So we are the victim. We are the victim um, of this, you know, uh, of this dynamic. If I may ask, what do you think they're waiting for before they put out a statement? I I personally don't know what they're waiting for. Uh, however, I think to analyze um, the situation in, in the Kurdistan region, uh, you always have to see the Kurdistan region within the greater context of uh, Iraqi politics. Uh, as of now, you know... Um, the two ruling parties here, uh, the Kurdish parties in Iraq, uh, perhaps they're still the most reliable allies of the West, especially the U.S. The U.S. still have the KDP and PUK um, as the main tools to balance power or to kind of use them against the increasing influence of the uh, Iranian-backed pol- you know, uh, political parties in, in central and southern provinces. So what does it mean? You know, it means that the U.S. Um, uh, does not want or it is not the interest of the U.S. or other international actors to put real, you know, meaningful pressure on the on the elite here uh, to stop this because uh, they are too afraid that uh, they might be leaning toward um, the other actor, uh, uh, which uh, which is something that they are very much concerned about. So uh, the the whole Iraqi political um, dynamic is, is is also not in favor of the of the people here. Now you mentioned the greater Iraqi uh, dynamic and context. Um, if you could please explain what is the symbolism of the Iraqi flag also being used by some Kurdish protesters, and if this is something new. See, someone in, uh, in Basra, uh, someone in Nasriya, someone in Baghdad, oh, and a Kurd in Zaho, in Amedi, in, in Akre, in Kafri, in Kalar, in, in the entire you know, Iraq, including the Kurdistan region, were, were having very, very similar situations. I mean, even though the Iraqi Kurdistan uh, has been pretty much detached from the rest of Iraq since 1992. In a sense, I think people are are finding out that we're having the same uh, we're having the same issues, where where we're dealing with a certain political elite, uh, and these political elites only favor um, their patronage network, and it is either you're within the system and you benefit or you are outside of the system and you are suffering. And I mean, I personally don't see a, 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 a great symbolism of Iraqi flag because, I mean, frankly, we don't even see, uh, we don't even see, um, you know, many Kurdish flag. 
and because because of the fact that even the the Kurdistan region is 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 a deeply divided society, especially because of the civil war. I mean, if you go to Sleimania and you see thousands of young protesters, if you randomly talk to them, maybe majority of them haven't even been to to uh, to Duhok. You know, my close friends when they tell when I tell them let's have a visit to Kirkuk, they kind of freak out. So um, the entire population are very, like Kurdistan region and the rest of Iraq are very much detached. And even within Kurdistan, the KDP and PUK area are very much also detached. But what we see, the, great, the greater picture is that even though uh, the society as a whole is deeply divided by the elite, people are having the same problems. People are facing the same issues and they're sharing similar grievances. I agree completely uh, on that point, um, which is why I wanted to ask um, that we have seen different Iraqi cities show solidarity with the Kurdish protests, um, but these have been on a on a much smaller scale. What could the rest of Iraq do in support of their co-nationals? Well, I think uh, what the... Uh what the co-nationals in the rest of Iraq can do is just uh, strengthening their solidarity, publishing more uh, more videos, uh, uh, supporting the, the demonstrators here. Um, this is the this is one of the best ways. Uh, and uh, another way would be that uh, for for the people in Iraq to to kind of put real pressure on the government. Uh, so that the federal government also uh, put pressure on the on the regional government, or uh, I don't know the, the the federal government can can provide a specific budget, even though we really don't want to see more public payment, um, like providing a specific you know budget for the students would also be a, a great way to kind of strengthen this solidarity and this relationship between. The, the different, you know, between the people in different parts of Iraq, because eventually um, the budget needed for the monthly stipend of, of, of the student is not a huge budget. Um, I don't have the exact statistics, but I've heard that there is like 20,000, 25,000 students and they're only asking for $50. They're not asking for like a thousand or a few hundred dollars. So even if it is, uh, uh, even if it is 25,000, it is only $12.5 million a month. Um, however, the Kurdistan regional government is too afraid that if they provide the money, that the budget, or if they allocate the budget, then the students or people just um, conduct uh, or demonstrate uh, for other um, services or other uh, things that they demand, and they say that they will uh, force the, the government to provide whatever they need. Right. Um Mira, if we can go back to the issue of uh, the asylum seekers and the uh, immigrants, do you think that the failed attempt to seek asylum in Europe um, and the return of so many Kurds from the Belarusian border um, helped fuel the protests in Soleimania? Because th there was this realization that emigration is not always a viable solution, and so you need to come up with solutions at home to make home more livable? Yeah, I certainly believe that uh, the huge uh, Kurdish, Iraqi Kurdish immigration crisis and people coming home, uh, you know, for weeks, um, uh, this crisis were trending on 
Kurdish social media, literally everything you saw was related about the, the crisis. So, uh, so I personally think this really fueled or contributed to their grievances uh, and uh, to take it to the street and to ask for their rights. Uh, I mean, see, um, if I if I talk to you about uh, these immigrants, so these immigrants, you know, a great, great number of them are university graduates. So they exactly went through uh, the, the very tough financial situations that students now are going through. Uh, a lot of, uh, if I may say, majority of these people are from the rural areas in, in, in the Kurdistan region. And in the rural area, if you have a job, uh, for like 400,000 Iraqi dinar, which is like $260, then they, they tell you you are among the elite. Uh, there's thousands of people who are jobless and a lot of people work for like $100, $200. Uh, so of course, when you see um, a, like students, thousands of students facing tear gases, you know, uh, and they are willing to be really injured for $50, it just... To me, it's, it's like a, it is very obvious how bad their economic situation is. I think you're right. Um, the focus on the migrant crisis in Western media has been focused on the Belarusian dictatorship's tactics to lure migrants. But it is missing the reasons behind why Iraqi politicians have failed their citizens. Would you agree with this? And if so, do you think this is intentional? See, you know, the, I mean, the, the very basic argument we can make here is that if I have a good life in Iraqi Kurdistan, if I have a good job, good money, I mean, no smuggler can deceive me, taking me to the forest. It is freezing cold, you're going to die. But unless, unless the grievances, I mean, um, the issues I'm having on daily basis here, uh, to me, uh, outweigh the risk I'm, I'm willing to take. So, of course, uh, we we should not also, uh, I mean, we should not only talk about the weaponization of immigrants between the EU and the, the Belarus. I mean, we should also, you know, fundamentally take a look at the reasons, you know, driving uh, people here, take, you know, driving people to take that risky road. Like, what is going on? Because... Um, because, you know, from, from a very Western, um, point of view, like whenever you, uh, whenever you, uh, take a look at Kurdistan region, I mean, the whole look is always through the lens of security stability. I mean, for someone in, I mean, for someone close to the Iranian border, like in this area in Choman or Soran, uh, I mean, since late nineties, there hasn't been any any like any real war. There hasn't been explosion. There hasn't been like there has been stability. But someone who was born in 2000, 2001, 2003, this person did not experience uh, any any war that could be convinced to stay because of the pure pure you know uh, security stability. Like thousands of these people want more, which is good life, job opportunity. And, and a life that they say with dignity, because a lot of people here say that they, they, they don't have a dignified life. Uh, so, of course, the, uh, I mean, because, um, because of the very tough political rivalry on tension because, uh, Belar between Belarus and uh, EU, that's why the whole, that's why the whole uh, focus uh, has been on, on, on Belarus and EU. Otherwise, 
uh, everyone should should wonder why why people are 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 taking that route and specifically Kurdistan region like what's going on so if 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 we have a if we have good governance here as and as i said if there is jobs and people think that they are living with dignity they have political freedom i don't think anyone can uh can deceive or especially smuggler can deceive someone to take that route i think that's a very important point mira to me it seems that allowing the media to be present at erbil international airport when the returnees arrived served as a message by the KRG to those who would attempt to migrate to Europe in the future. Would you agree with that? See, even the the repatriation flight, um, I was at the airport. Um, it, was a, it was a mind-blowing embarrassment for, for people, for the returnees. Um, a lot of people were covering their faces, wearing their hats, looking down, um, so psychologically, it was devastating for them, uh, and f- for me, frankly, it was uh, it was just very. I could not digest the fact that the Kurdistan regional government spokesperson held a conference there, and he was like, "We're not charging the returnees for the PCR test." I was like, "Wow!" Uh, I mean, the, the Kurdistan region did not even provide buses. Uh, for the returnees. I myself uh, was there uh, with a friend of mine. So, uh, I mean, I could not control my emotion, frankly. I had like tears in my eyes. Uh, I mean, all I could offer was that just uh, loading people uh, in the car and taking them to the garage and, you know, the Suleimania garage and to uh, arrange their, uh, their trip back. I mean, it was, it would have been so easy for the Kurdistan regional government just to provide like six buses. There was this Yazidi family; they didn't have, they didn't even have money to to take a taxi. Uh, I mean, the whole repatriation flight um, or the returnees, um, it was a clear message uh, for people that it is it is not that easy to to go to Europe, and you will be forced to come back and live here and perhaps. Uh, accept the status quo. However, um, I was there and I talked to several people. Um, many of the people did not regret taking the road. There was this uh, guy, he, he, um, he told the media that his family was outside of the, of the terminal and he said, even with his dirty clothes, if there is a road, he would not go back home. He would still take the, um, the you know, he would still try to immigrate. So what drove people to immigrate is still there. The factors, the reasons, the crisis. And this is why I have said the immigration crisis will, will get worse and worse if, if, the, if the KRG is not serious about finding a solution to it. And let me tell you how. I mean, we all know that Iraq, including the Kurdistan region, demographically, it is a very young population. And as time passes by, we have more people, 18 years old, 19, 20, 21. And most importantly, on yearly basis in the Kurdistan region, we have tens of thousands of, you know, uh, graduates. I mean, students graduate from universities. They have a degree. They have the expectations that the government will either employ them in the public sector or will get them a, a job in the private sector. 
and there is no economic infrastructure to 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 bring these people into the private sector and the public sector is already too big it is 1.2 million out of a population of 6 million so of course if you are a young guy you studied for um, 16 years and you're only left with a with a degree that cannot bring you a job and you're in the rural areas and uh, the job that you can get uh, uh, is like a $200 uh, monthly job and of course what you think about is just is just leaving uh, and at the same time, you see a very, very big social injustice uh, in, in the Kurdistan region. You know, I, 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 I hope this message is, is very, very clear. I hope um, that will uh, that will deliver to everyone who will listen to this podcast. Uh, this situation will continue as far as Ashisha. Ashisha costs fifty dollars in one of the. Uh, restaurants in Arbil, and it is exactly the same that ten, you know, uh, tens of thousands of uh, students are are fighting for as a monthly stipend. So the monthly stipend of a student is equal to a shisha in one of the restaurants in in, in Arbil, uh, and or as far as the the daily wage of of a worker is equal to the to the cost of parking in in, in a certain area in Arbil is like fifteen thousand. So. The whole narrative about building the second Dubai in the Kurdistan region, which is Erbil, this is not helping the, the, the two ruling parties. The, this only widens social injustice and it will only fuel people's grievances and it will only push more people to immigrate. The two ruling party really have to go and invest in the rural areas because this is where majority of people are and this is where majority of the young people graduate and are jobless. And these people might wait for a year or two or three or four or five, then they might resort to to violence. Um, and what's what's really really paramount to be mentioned right now is that is the results of the last October elections. See, um, there was uh, I mean three point four million in the Kurdistan region were eligible to vote. Uh, the statistics. As of now, the results as of now show that the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, one of the ruling parties, only got 6.1% out of the total number of voters. And the KDP got over 16%. So both of whom, they are not even representing a quarter of the population. So eventually, maybe in in, in the next election, in, in four years, uh, these two parties will face a huge legitimacy crisis. And when uh, when uh, the majority of people don't vote, don't participate in the election, that means they don't believe that elections as a democratic mean will bring about change because they tested it in 2013, in 2010, in 2018. So the PUK and KDP really have to be careful about this. They really have to calculate the threat of this. Otherwise, I am very um, concerned personally, and I have to say that uh, things might not stay peaceful. Kakamira, thank you very much for your time and your insights. Thank you very much, Hassan, for having me. Uh, it was a great honor talking to you. The honor is all mine, brother. We hope that the Kurdistan regional government refrains from using violence on its people as they exercise their constitutional right to peacefully protest. We also hope that our sisters and brothers in Kurdistan are able to start seeing improved services and improved governance, which will allow them to want to remain in Iraq and live a dignified and prosperous life. 
That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Arachi Voices. Until next time, take care. <laughs>